the caterpillar field, the end of its world. Then as a butterfly, its wings unfurled. I'm Heather McLeod. Welcome to the Butterfly Fears and Lake Superior Love edition of Something Different This Way Comes. Featuring Robert Stewart, Lakehead University. Something different this way comes, something, something different. Something different, something different, this way comes something, something different, something different. I went to a celebration of Lake Superior in her water a few weeks ago, and I learned so much, in particular through a presentation by my guest today, Dr. Robert Stewart. He started his presentation talking about Thunder Bay as he knew it growing up polluted, so polluted, then how he's seen improvements since then, been a part of making those changes happen, and how much change still needs to happen, that we're positioned to just make happen so much more easily than you might assume. It was great, and it made me think of water I knew well growing up, that I got to visit this past summer and found profoundly changed. When I lived in Calgary in the early 70s, my stepdad worked right at the junction of the Bow and the Elbow Rivers, right downtown. And I went to daycare right nearby. So I played on that riverside a lot for those years, me and my sister, chasing crayfish, stacking and throwing stones. When I returned to that spot this summer, I realized that the rivers of my childhood were dirtier, smellier, oilier, more polluted than the water I saw there now. And I didn't remember that until I stood in the spot and was shocked by the pollution that was so taken for granted in my childhood it was kind of invisible, even in my memories. But it was so much better. I didn't see that it had changed until I went back. Why does good news not make the news? I kind of know the answer to that. But I think it's worth thinking about. The impact of all the good things we don't spend as much time hearing about. We have to work harder to find. And the impact of all the bad news we get dumped on us as a part of our days all the time. Especially bad news we can't do anything about at any rate. I know why. But that's not what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about what good looks like. And good looks like cleaning up. Restoring and renewing water and wild spaces, which is what Dr. Rob Stewart does right here in Thunder Bay and, and would love our help to do more. That's what he spoke about at that event last month. Dr. Rob Stewart is head of the Freshwater Coastal Management Research Group. He's also professor of geography at Lakehead University, which is where I met him last week, Wednesday the 16th of November 2022 to be exact. Thank you so much for, for having me in your office today. It's a great way to spend lunch. Yeah, I'm glad that you can come and enjoy the university uh, and we can do things here once in a while again. Yeah. So I had the pleasure of seeing you in action with slides up and everything, and, and, you, and you introduced our lake to me in a way I hadn't heard before and would love to hear again. Because I moved here 20 years ago, and it took me a long time to even get to see that lake. It's not a shoreline that we were much a part of as city people necessarily, but you grew up here. So tell me how you've seen this lake as it, as it encroaches on and is encircled by our city, this little corner of lake change in your lifetime. Okay. Well, I think what's really interesting about the lake right now to start is how big it is, you know, the largest freshwater lake in the world uh, by surface area, we have to qualify, but just it's critical importance to fresh water of the planet, you know, and how inaccessible it actually is. And I'm not just talking about it's cold, it can be rough, but 
it's hard to get to Lake Superior if you're in the city of Thunder Bay. It's not accessible to everyone. It might be accessible to people who've bought a property there or know to go to the marina with their boat. But I grew up in Fort William near the Cam River and there was train tracks and all sorts of things in the way from me getting to, at that time, a very polluted river. So there's this neat aspect of like people today almost reintroducing themselves to a lake because we're talking about you know, the importance of getting out there and connecting in a way that we didn't when we were younger. Uh, and I remember when I was young, you know, my great grandparents were log finished loggers and they lived on the lake and logged with other families and almost squatted there. And so I was privileged to be able to go and access the lake. And our sensitivity to the pollution of the lake at the time was not high, uh, which meant our tolerance for pollution uh, was low or sorry, it was high, and but we still were happy to get in that water. And, you know, growing up, we I was near what was the Smurfit Stone packaging plant. And at the time, you know, this is before major regulations in the late 80s, you know, the, the, the mills would release chemicals or release packaging equipment and the wind would blow it down into the beach where my great-grandparents had squatted. And you know, today that would be a shocking thing to see, but at the time we would simply, you know, the, the adults would sort of remind us that, you know, get out of the water for a bit and this packaging material might might wash up on the beach for the afternoon. And we played until it washed back out and got back in the water. So on one hand, the lake, um, you know, we were tolerant about this, but we were also getting in the lake uh, a lot regardless. Whereas today I think people are afraid of lakes because they think they're polluted. Uh, we we don't have a high tolerance for pollution, so we are cleaning the lake up. But like I said, we're not connecting with it. We don't have access to it. And so for me, that was a really big thing. Not only did I want to be part of like cleaning the lake up, um, but I wanted to get to well, why, you know, what is this connection I always hear about? You know, when I when I go into First Nation communities and they talk about this deep connection with the lake as a teacher, and I was just like, I want, you know, I want that, but I don't know how to get it. We have a relationship with that lake regardless uh, and 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 the connection to it isn't just recreation enjoyment that's important or even the wonders of what it is scientifically it really is how that lake teaches us how to live here and whether that's you going on the lake and it teaches you how to get off the lake quickly or it teaches you how to enjoy life in the winter right by going out on a frozen landscape that now you're marveled by it's cracking under your feet and it's a different thing than it was when it was a dominant lake throughout the summer so it's it's inviting you but it's cautioning you and teaching you at the same time and you hear that with shipping people or people that have had bad experiences on the lake but i'm talking about one more level deeper of a teacher that reassures us in a time where we we're, we're concerned about the future you know sometimes i think the lake is fine it's it's us that are learning about ourselves by what we're putting on the land or in our toilets that end up in the lake. A lake is not just this beautiful ecosystem. We have put it in the place of being sort of our toilet bowl. And, and Lake Superior of all the toilet bowls is the tank of the toilet bowl. So, you know, on one end, we're, we're starting to learn and appreciate it and really have high value for pr protecting it. But we can't rectify that with the reality that it is just diluting our pollution, that everything we're doing on the land is is allowed, ultimately, whatever ends up in the lake has to dilute it. So I'm hearing two things here. One is our way of living with this, this key part of not just our landscape, but our planet. And we have a, a specific custodian role um, that the people who've lived here forever much more sustainably than Europeans have since we came can teach us a thing or two about. Um, but we also need to reboot it because there's things to clean up and habits to change and understandings to deepen. Um, now, you did mention just in passing that in the 1980s, how we interact with the lake did have a bit of a reboot. And, and that had an effect on things like packaging from a plant just being allowed to wash over on the shore and subsume a section of the lake with anybody blinking an eye. Can you give a quick run over of what we have accomplished when it comes to using the lake as a toilet bowl in the last few decades? Yeah, I think because we're so focused on these emerging issues, how climate change is going to affect the lake and the warming of the lake and invasive species, that we do forget the tremendous amount of work that went into stopping and cleaning up 
point source contamination, just the, the amount of industries in the 50s, 60s, 70s that simply used the lake as a resource, dumped into it. So, But at the time, up until the 80s, there was very little regulation. So for example, uh, you might have had to do treatment at a pulp mill for some forms of chemicals and solids, but ultimately there was no secondary treatment to catch what you've treated the first time. So a lot of chemicals and debris went into the lake. We had tremendous log booms from rivers that were held behind the break wall in order to be at some point pulled into the pulp mills. And those were decaying and releasing fiber into the harbor that's behind the harbor walls. At the same time, you've got oil from just general industry all along the shoreline entering the lake. You've got creosote uh, factories where the creosote is going into the lake. You've got stormwater and, and, and wastewater going into the lake. So you actually, in the 80s, if you went to the marina, there's no way you would get in that water. There's, there was an area for boats, but there was it, the rest of the breakwalled harbor was this combination of fiber and oil and foam and you know sulf sulfuric chemicals. However, by the end of the 80s, not only did they radically change what chemicals you could put in the lake, but they simply required everybody to make sure no solids went in there. So we want you to reduce your chemical impact and absolutely no tolerance for solids. And that radically changed the, that, that physical makeup of the water, first of all. So it, it caused a major impact to the way harbors look. They started to look cleaner. They stopped using log booms and started using logging trucks more often. So there was a number of factors in addition to these regulations that just were logical, like these chemicals are harmful, we've finally proven it, let's not allow them. So it was an age of regulating chemicals that, you know, phosphorus, for example, entering Lake Erie or, or, or sulfur from smokestacks entering as acid rain were visible problems, but we needed to, science to prove it so industry and government would change. So up until that point, some obvious chemicals are just in your environment until they're removed. So it was that quick. And then we also cleaned up. We went to places that had mercury that had been deposited from a mill, for example, that are now in the sediment and pose a long-term threat uh, to the ecosystem. And we realized that we have to remove that from these ecosystems now before they become dangerous in the long term. So there was a lot of effort on the American and the Canadian side to clean up point sources, which again is something foreign to a government, right? Usually when an industry is closed, especially in Canada, you know, there's no, they're gone. There's no way of, of, of going out and necessarily getting them to pay for something they did 40 years ago. This is sort of where you came into the picture in your profession, right? Now let's do some cleaning up. Yeah. Uh, so you talked a bit in this presentation I saw about what that job was expected to be when it started and how you've changed your understanding of what it is going forward. But the other point you made that I really want to go back to a little bit first is at that point it was like this revelation. If we fail to make people do things right and they get away with it, they close the business, it's gone, 40 years later the garbage is still there, somebody has to pay that bill. And has that also shifted so that now there's a little bit more proactive how you use the resources that are necessary to whatever industry we've okayed is your long-term bill. You can't sneak out quite so easy. Has that also improved? It's definitely improved on a, on a level of when you look at society adapting and changing. However, it's a kind of a sad story because the reason it's improved is because the communities left behind with a mercury contamination problem that can no longer find the owners of the mill that caused it can complain about that, can complain to the government until they realize we have to clean this up. It's my kids that are going to be fishing in that creek and I got to stop complaining about who caused this and the fact that I can't get justice and I got to get out there and clean up the environment. And so now you've got people, a Canadian society that, yeah, still has high expectations of our government, but's realizing, you know, if we're going to do this level work, we need to do it ourselves. We need to clean up mercury by taking a small amount of the problem and getting a community group involved or getting the conservation authority to partner uh, with a university and a community group to do a larger project and start teaching people, hey, this isn't just cleaning up. We're learning about the environment. We're, we're actually part of an economy that's reversing the impact, wow, this is kind of stimulating. Like, give me some more contaminated sites because <laughs> these are fun places to experience the adaptive, innovative capacity of people as well as mourn and witness the reality of what we've created. And there's lots of brownfields that are just sitting out of people's 
with nothing happening to it. So it's it's sad in the sense that you know we thought we lived in a society necessarily that the same people causing the problems would just clean it up once they got the technology. But but this is the type of community gardening that we I think need again uh, to get back on track. Why we're living here and what's stimulating about it, other than you know global jobs and global yeah. economies. Yeah. Now that's huge. So last night I went to a, a presentation here, uh, part of Science Week, by a chemist, and and she was talking about uh, chemistry and and how it can help us better understand what's really going on, and also inform people to empower them to 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 put their voices together and and really push for for change. And what she said was there was a question from the audience like, when are we going to go and you know tie ourselves to the wheels of the leaders so that they'll change? She said, I don't believe. That, that leaders lead anybody. Leaders are followers. The power to change is when people get together and show what needs to happen. And then those leaders, quote unquote, will come running after you to say, oh, that's a great idea. Let me get behind you and, and, and help add my voice to get some credit for what you have figured out can work. So this has become a recurring theme in, in my podcast as I talk to people is we're very attracted to talking about what's the iceberg above the water, like the elected officials or the head of a CEO or, or whatever's going on on the other side of the world. It, 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 there is actually a lot of power underneath the water. If you, if you look at who's next to you and what you guys know together and pool your resources and raise your voices, it's not a change, but it is a powerful and sustainable change. Uh, so I love that you're saying that this has been proven in the world of cleaning up. And there's lots more room to prove it some more now that we know what works. Well, and I think the way I look at it is, you know, when people address some of these historic legacy contaminants that have occurred for 80 years, they're overwhelmed. How do we possibly clean this up? Well, you clean it up the same way it was caused, from the bottom up, one step at a time. And that's community work. Communities are good at, you know, a decentralized grassroots effort that can plug away over time, even if it's only achieving a little thing. But we we can't reverse these things without putting the same level of effort into them that that matches the effort that caused them, right? Every day emitting into a lake. So, you know, I think that decentralized aspect, of course, is emblematic of an adaptive society. It's empowering, it's freeing, it allows us to have different knowledge forms. But I will say that our government, our environmental agencies are doing an excellent job of empowering that community process. I experience programs that, yes, there's advice and expertise and some rules, but if, a, if Environment Canada, for example, sees that the city of Thunder Bay wants to clean something up or wants to deal with a risk a certain way, they'll honour that, that voice and support it. It's more when there is no voice uh, that, they, that they'll come in and say, well, this is how we would deal with it or this is what we need to address. Or if it's a serious contaminant, there might be a health risk that it has a bit more of a rigid solution. But I think we're in the time of governments emboldening people to do this type of work because it's not a centralized system anymore um, and I think the government is empowering people and taking the risk to let them make community level decisions in the old days again you often thought oh well, the community's not smart enough right they don't have the expertise but we're dealing with problems that we don't know the answers to and who better to do that than the people that want to figure it out wrestle with it plug away at it get frustrated you know but then come back to it um yeah, I think it is the way of addressing these larger cumulative problems. Yeah, you will be met. If, if you come up with a, a very clear idea of what you need to know, what you think should be done, there will be resources there. But if you just wait for someone to sweep in and solve a problem, odds are much less. And, and, and if it's a problem that can't wait, and it, despite a lack of local support, gets the attention of larger, the, the odds that it's going to be a good fit are pretty slim too. They're going to try to cookie cutter you, looks enough like something that works somewhere else, we'll just make this happen here. Uh, that's really, really important to hear. Um, but also empowering, right? It's not that nobody's doing anything, we're just not hearing about it. That doesn't mean it's not happening. And I think what's happening there is, you know, maybe in previous decades, you know, we had this stable idea of society that needs to be, you know, improved equitably and government came in and did that. And if there was an environmental problem affecting our recreation, the government should solve that. But we're, the lake is teaching us that there's so much complexity and change that could happen, that the future is not predictable and the future is risky. And if you're going to start dealing with risk instead of just environmental problems that you need to solve, the best people to make decisions about risk are the ones that bear risk. So it's not about 
government saying we don't have the capacity to do this so we're just going to let communities do it now they're saying look we can't assess the risk and do something about it from our position here in southern ontario we've got to let people in thunder bay learn and know about their risks so that they make risk-based decisions and then we'll come in and support them and that's that's the way of the future managing a risk i want to teach our kids that it's okay to see that there's risks in life and to properly manage them and know you're doing your best and then go out and and be stimulated by life after you've done that versus being subservient to a society that's supposed to be taking care of all these components. Yeah, feeling autonomous, feeling impactful Mm -hmm. uh, and connected, not just to the people in your life, but the world you live in. Mm -hmm. Um, So another part from this presentation last night was actually credited to uh, David Suzuki's website where he says, uh, you know, previously we, we like to think ourselves as, you know, here we are, very, very important people and very tied to an economy that's somehow bigger and outside of us but overlaps us. And somewhere over there, there might be an environment. And he's like, no, it's one planet, right? We're one of many species on this one planet. And our economy is entirely our own creation. Uh, and they're all created, but there's this, like this little dot in the sea of green. Um, so, you know, if we fail to manage our little corner, we might go extinct and be replaced by some other hominid who's better at adapting and managing its, its relationship with its essentials, namely its planet. Um, but a reboot of sort of our place in the picture and also our openness to paradox. So when you were talking, I kept thinking about, you want there to be a simple, like, oh, is that my problem or not my problem? Is that, um, is that a recreational issue or is that an industry issue? Is that a educational or research problem or is that a practical and applied problem? And in fact, good solutions are all those things. Like life is full of layers, and the more that we can communicate and connect and collaborate in solutions, the better the odds that we can do one thing that has many positive effects as opposed to competing in any way for who gets to solve the problem or who's, for whom the solution works. Yeah. But so that gets me to the next step, the greater complexity than what it might have looked like a while ago that I, that I said we'd come back to. So you talked about how uh, you, when you first started working on looking at the lake basin and, and how to improve its health, it was framed in one way. And you've learned or over time it's become very clear that the frame needs to be much bigger and the solutions are much more interrelated and complicated. So give me a little picture of that, because I don't want to put words in your mouth. That was my understanding. You can clarify. And then where is it taking us going from here? Well, I guess the, the first thing I thought about when you said, you know, how are we changing and how is our relationship going to perhaps bring us, you know, to a better balance or relationship with the lake, or maybe, as in today's words, a healthier lake, And I think of two things. I think of the lake as our teacher and the lake is alive. Right now, we consider the lake a resource, right? No matter how many good intentioned people and and people that still live here that are on the lake, you know, the way we frame it, the way we manage it, the Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement, yes, we want to protect and restore these lakes, but it is a resource. And that's different from 100 years ago when maybe there was scientists like Louis Agassiz studying the lake scientifically, but so that he could talk about God. Right? Or go even further back where First Nations communities weren't just living and benefiting from the lake and not just learning how to survive, but learning how to, to live, learning how to want to live, to how to live the good life, to how to get through the rough times so that you can live. So the first thing is, you know, we really have to contemplate how we view that lake or that entity or that ecosystem or that teacher or that mother. And because it's, it's, it's the way we look at it as an inanimate object that causes us to make mistakes with it. And then when we want to clean it up, it's more about our value for how that, the lake's state reflects us as opposed to... So we're not valuing it as an entity. So maybe that view of what it really provides and spending time realizing what it provides us, not just physically, but how its existence teaches us the way of existence. That's, that's one thing. So I, I, I would then go to the First Nations traditions and, and people today that are um, still teaching us those lessons because I really believe that that was the relationship back then. But the second thing is to really appreciate that the lake is an entity and I believe the lake is alive. So first of all, the lake is not the water, right? The lake is 
well, maybe more the watershed where the rain falls and flows and picks up different chemicals or nutrients or transports different animals or humans into the basin of where it rests uh, before it moves on. Um, perhaps that's the lake because we're always thinking of the, the water sitting out there. We're monitoring the water sitting out there. We're talking about the lake out there without realizing that ultimately it's the imprint, it's our existence on the watershed that's putting ourselves into that lake. So there's a, there's a relationship there um, to really perceive what is the lake and, and when it comes to action on the lake, maybe everybody can get involved in protecting the lake by what they put down the drain. But the other aspect of it being a living entity isn't just obvious from its physical functioning. You know, it has almost like the capillaries of lungs. When you look at a watershed, uh, like the map I'm showing you, I'm pointing to, you know, if you look at uh, the, the topography of the watershed without the trees and the soil and so forth, it's like veins on the landscape, like capillaries, and they transfer water that has high amounts of oxygen in it and streams that have depleted oxygen and they're being recharged. So that's the way our lungs work. It sends, you know, deoxygenated blood one way and oxygenated blood the other way. Um, you know, those capillaries are also blood veins that the water flowing through it, if I can sample it, will give me a, a fingerprint or an imprint of what is going to be in that lake. So I can almost like a doctor taking your blood sample to diagnose, you know, how healthy you are or if you have any concerns. We use those rivers, not just for drinking and fishing, but to diagnose the health of a lake through, through those veins. The foliage in the watershed that's decaying in the fall and growing back in the summer is another form of breath air in and out that then is infiltrated into the watershed. The water being uptaken by the soil, the plants and the trees for a month, two months, six months that then feeds that river in six months later so it goes in the lake is very much like we store nutrients in our bodies. You've got wetlands throughout these watersheds and at the shore of the lake that are like kidneys for water flowing into them to slow down the contaminants to be brought into plants and decay away. And then every once in a while that water surges into the lake in a different form, functioning like kidneys. There's circulation of the lake, much like the circulation of the body that has cycles that brings up nutrients at some times of the year uh, and, and detoxes at other times of the year. There's a range of ecosystems then obviously surviving off of those patterns. So, you know, there are some examples like the human body that it's alive but you really have to go much further to understand the codependence or interdependence of species that then make up another living entity so whether it's we as humans or they talk about the consciousness of ants like an individual ant is a living thing but even though the ant doesn't know what it's necessarily doing in the big picture it forms a consciousness with the colony and we value that as a living process that we don't want to disrupt so again take the abiotic non-living and biotic living components of the lake and all the interactions that they go through over time that is a consciousness of a living functioning system that provides humans animals the rock the climate with so many functioning so where do we where do we stop thinking about what life means and what consciousness means and what being a valued entity be, means on the planet and so you know, we value corporations as living human beings so that they have legal rights to function. Why isn't a lake and the rivers flowing into it valued for its maybe not human quality, and in some cases a human, but as its living quality that deserves the rights of an individual? And that makes it a different entity than us seeing it as a resource that we need to extract and dilute so we can live on the land. Three things. It's a huge trend right now is uh, giving person status to key elements of our planet, and most of those are water. So it's interesting you brought that up. Another is I spoke with a man who's calling it Save the Mothers, and his point is that we keep putting things up for a very narrow purpose that have unintended consequences that starve our lake. So spawning fish can't go up a river, pregnant deer and moose get killed on highways, and the cumulative effect of these unintended costs is huge because we are malnourishing and, and actually poisoning sometimes a living creature that we rely upon. That is, is not just 
you know, another thing in our landscape, but is is actually essential part of our planet's health and therefore our ability to sustain. The third thing you said, though, as you talk about flushing out toxins and carrying around nutrients, I'm like, we have to partner with this power, right? The solutions are not something we impose and, and we do or fail to do. The, the doing and failing doing um, is going to be much more effective if we do it humbly with a partner who is going to meet us more than halfway. So if you start by looking for the wisdom of the systems already in place and support those and respect those, you'll get a lot farther than assuming you understand things better than this inanimate, can't talk to me in the language I'm using uh, system and, and try to impose upon it what you think is probably what's going down. And that seems to me like a theme of, of, a, of a core to a lot of the errors of our economy and way of interacting with our natural resources over the last 200 years is this enormous presumption that we know so much. And now is a time to be humble and listening. So this just, again, brings me back to that word relationships. And, you know, I'm not discovering this. This was taught to me by, you know, when I go into First Nation communities around Lake Superior about relationships. But it's starting to dawn on me that, you know, a relationship isn't just something, like you're saying, it's not only something you partner with, it's something you check in on. You're accessible to your partner and then you're responsive to your partner when you're doing the job well. So when we go out on the land with the lake and we start noticing that, you know, the highways are affecting moose and so on and so forth, we're not checking in with the lake. We're realizing at some point someone does a study and says there's cumulative impacts and then we say, oh no, we can't have cumulative impacts. Let's do something about it. But it's not because we've checked in with the lake incrementally to foresee those problems before they came cumulative. So, you know, the butterfly effect or that philosophy of, you know, when you walk through the forest, don't break a branch. Well, of course, it's not going to destroy the ecosystem if you break a branch. But if everybody behind you start breaking a branch and someone decides that they're going to get a tool to cut the branch instead, down the line, all of those types of actions without checking in with the system and the big picture of the system is, is potentially going to lead us to focusing on ourselves, doing what's logical, and then causing problems in our relationships that we're not paying attention to. So, so a partner is a good word. I still, I still want to say teacher because that means it's not an equal partnership. Yeah. Like, humility comes, as you said, through relationships, but humility also comes through when we take all our great economies and science and what we know about the lake and realize that it still is a tiny little component of what that lake does, what it provides us. And like I said, we could try to damage that lake. We're only going to damage the things we value in it. It's still going to be there and it's going to teach us that, you know, it's far beyond these, these meaningful components that we have and the relationship could therefore be that much greater as well. And the humility comes. So, you know, and this still goes back to how we manage, study, you know, the, all of these more Western uh, focuses on the lake, but it really just relates to a, a real, not just saying I want a relationship, but then saying, I believe there's something out there for me in that relationship and I'm going to, to find it. And a relationship takes work not only to keep it, but to, to make it what it is. And so that's, that takes work on our part, um, not just recognizing it. So these things to make a lake um, a living being, I mean, these are symbolic recognitions. Um, and they're important, but the real work comes when no one's watching and you as an individual, uh, when you're feeling bad, you know, go out to that lake and it, it doesn't seem like there's anything out there for you, but something happens out there that just lights a spark or gets you wondering or gets you to appreciate it that changes for a moment, you know, how you feel. You know, that's working at a relationship. Um, and, and I just don't, I, I think we think we're doing that but I think we're working at a better resource relationship. That's, that's the best we're doing at the, at the moment. So at the end of your presentation, you actually had a map up and you showed the shore of, of Lake Superior and our main tributaries in a way I hadn't seen before. And all of these opportunities to uh, restore, renew, fix. Can you give me an introduction to that map? Yeah, well, first I would say, you know, it's a lot easier to think of a good thing to do that you can deploy when it is in harmony with what the lake is showing you. And one of the things the lake does really well is it 
recreates itself really well, like a disturbance on the lake be met by some sort of process, wave action or weather that will recreate that environment. We can simply just go out there and be gardeners again. Like there is a stimuli in gardening. I don't know if you garden, but uh, getting our hands dirty together. I mean, there's obviously even science behind the enzymes in soil, let alone the, the, the collaborative stimulation. But there is some sophistication to this work. You know, we want to think uh, effectively. We want to think about the processes we might be trying to replenish. There is a bit of work that we can do to help everybody understand all of the great reasons of doing it. But it's not that hard in the springtime to volunteer for a one week to help the Lakehead Region Conservation Authority plant a bunch of trees in a restoration area or even be involved in the design stage. They open up that to the public. You can sit on a board and say, here's what we want to see out of these restoration sites. Uh, it's easy for those groups, once they get together again, to signal to the government that, hey, this would be a good group to give funding to because they're organized. They seem to know what they want. They're connecting with the community to make sure the community. So it, to do this great ecological work, it's social relationship processes that we tend to, especially after the pandemic, want again, but maybe in more authentic forms. Because people are signaling that they're doing this work, local engineers are saying, well, I better train myself in some restoration work because these folks might need that skill. Um, I better train myself in proposal writing because right now there is a ton of money in Canada for restoration, but just not a lot of very well-organized people feeling confident to get it. So these things are now all in place. So the, the, the things we do on the land are incrementally improving it versus incrementally degrading it. So how many restoration sites are there just within Thunder Bay along the water? Well, a couple of years ago, um, a couple agencies sort of physically looked at spaces, both public that are available and then private challenging, but where they need to be done. And in the city of Thunder Bay, um, you know, we listed probably 20 fairly significant projects. Um, but then we prioritized them because, you know, we're funded by a, a, a very effective program and we wanted to make sure we were getting, you know, the biggest, most challenging projects done first and then sort of set out this inventory so that, you know, the field naturalists who do great work say, hey, you know, there's a project listed here. We do this type of work. It's all lined up. We can get the funding. We can have partners. But over time, if you want to help a large ecosystem be intact again or have functioning at that level there has to be a little bit of strategizing of where those strat where those projects go are they meeting certain diversity criteria or social criteria public access uh, so we've dwindled those 20 projects down to six major projects you know up in the hundred thousands in some cases a half a million dollars completely you know affecting an industrial lot that might have been abandoned for 10 years and has contamination in it and turning it into wetlands and turning it into riparian or treed river zones or reconnecting a creek a spawning a nursery creek that was just disconnected from a industrial parking lot. So we've narrowed those six projects down because we feel that is really uh, a responsibility of government and the programs that are about that. But there still is, you know, 14 to 15 projects that agencies have reviewed, promoted, identified uh, that we've listed on our website that, like I said, any group that has time or wants to get involved can start plugging away at those projects. We're eventually going to try to get to them. Um, but the point is to create a bit more of a critical mass for people to do straightforward, easy work, but in a bit more of a conscious, organized way. I love that. So in other words, somebody can go there and say, okay, here's something going on that I want to make sure everybody knows I think is great. Right. And write letters, donate money, whatever. Here's something going on that I think I have two or three friends that would agree would be an opportunity for us to make a difference on our weekends with our skills, with our insight. And here's people we can call that can get us hitting the ground running because they've already done a lot of the legwork and all they need is somebody to take up the cause. I had no idea. Like, that's so lovely. And, and part of what it is making me think about. So you talked about how the lake is alive. It is an entity, an ancient, wise, and very omnipotent in many ways entity uh, that we rely on. And our relationship to it is a step-down relationship. It's bigger than us in many ways. Uh, and I said, well, you know, that's why there's this trend to give peoplehood to really important parts of our planet to help us remember that relationship is so essential and value it in our decisions at our little level of life. 
So the other thing going on, the other trend economically, is um, people sitting down and, and putting number values, dollar values, to parts of our geography that benefit us personally, and comparing it to if we tried to build that kidney system uh, out of cement and you know workers and digging and draining and filtering. What would it cost us if we if we tried to have a storm surge that worked as effectively as that marsh over there? What would it cost us to help people put a value on what was innately in their landscape? Maybe they're built on a delta, and the delta really wants to come back. And it's hard to feel you're not losing what you built on the delta until you put a value on what the delta does. Um, and sometimes it's, okay, water amounts are going to be a lot higher. We can tell that going forward. Where will the water want to be in our landscape? And therefore, how can we value investing proactively in making that space for it before it claims it from what's there now? So how is that also going on in Thunder Bay? Are there conversations about really um, working more proactively with our geography so that we're ready for what life might throw us next? Yeah, I think uh, so. The valuation of the ecosystem, obviously, in my view, can never be valuated. Not only because it's precious, but because w- there's just no way we could figure out all of the things that, a, like a, a a food chain provides, right? So I just wanted to qualify that. That that. But as a as a current strategy to show people, for example, who want to develop into Williams Bog and f- build a new home in a nice new area. Uh, perhaps the value of that home and so on should be shown beside the value of Williams Bog and what it's doing not only to our drinking water and our lake, but all the systems flowing through it. And it would be in the millions and millions of dollars, uh, you know, compared to a home. So just so that people, just like we did studies to show people what sulfuric acid did when it fell out of the clouds so that we can make an obvious decision, sometimes we have to show these metrics so that we, you know, we're aware, we're very conscious that these things have a value. And in fact, you know, when we do remove Williams Bog, we will pay for it in engineering works, stormwater work, and so on in the city. We won't be able to account for it. We won't be able to show people. But if we're about taking care of ourselves, we should be concerned about, uh, you know, what is that metric for what that bog is, is worth over time? And are we really weighing the trade-offs of developing? You know, it's just a bog. If you spend a time in a bog like our students do, uh, they have a very different sensitivity to it. You know, when you say you're going to clear Williams Bog, they're thinking of, you know, the animals, the bugs, the birds they've spent time with, this complex ecosystem, and it just doesn't make sense to them because they're just not thinking, there's a housing boom, let's make some more money. Um, so I think the valuation thing is, a, is, is, is something that we need to be somewhat cautious about, but serves a very good purpose. Now, I mean, ideally, we would just get to the point where our building pl- uh, planning and codes would be very precautionary that you can build, but we're we're not even trying to assess the impact because we're doing everything possible in the long run to protect that system. In my uh, last week's podcast, I, I talked about coastal engineering, coastal impact in Rotterdam, which is built over a delta, right? And it's 800 years of living over this delta. And 58% of that town is below sea level. So they've got hundreds of years of experience keeping the sea out. The problem is with climate change and with intense water certainty, we don't know when, but intense water events on the land are happening and they're going to happen more often and they're going to flow into that delta. So the water on the other side of the dike is now the concern. And what Rotterdam has decided to do is to proactively go to all the people who will be flooded or it would be very expensive to try to find a, a way to keep that water from flooding them out because that's where the water wants to be and sit down with them and say, this is what's coming. And they're like, yeah, I kind of thought so because I noticed this and I see that and I understand this because I have hundreds of years of my family living here to draw on mm-hmm. and say, we're thinking we need to let the water go where it wants to go, which means what you're doing here is going to have to change dramatically. What do you think would work? And they are getting permission and collaborating on basically abandoning neighborhoods and industries and farmlands to what it wants to be. And we've kept it from being for hundreds of years because that has greater resilience and sustainability than trying to hold on to it. But it's hard. It takes courage and saying, I'm sorry, I can't let you la-la-la any longer. Shit's happening. Can't give you the date. Can't give the amount. Can't give you how quickly it'll happen. I can give you that it'll happen. What can we do proactively? And, and asking people with respect 
to join them at the table and not say, sorry, you lost the lottery, you live in the wrong part of town, your house, which is the only wealth you have, is going to go underwater someday, so we're forcing you out of there now, and here's a paltry bit of money we feel like we can afford to give you to try to find something in what's left of the city that hasn't got enough housing already. That's not what good looks like. But a much more respectful, collaborative, you're the expert, we respect that you're here, help us solve the problem. It's so far from the conversations I'm hearing, but there's lots I don't know, right? What do I hear? I hear the the fear buttons of what's on the news, and 90% of it's not in my backyard. So there is lots going on that I don't know about. So I didn't even know about Williams Bog. I don't know where Williams Bog is. I know bogs are beautiful, and I live near another one where we just had a little fight to try to discourage people to build. And we lost. So it's, it's so, I feel like we, we could get there like that mm-hmm. if everybody would agree, this makes sense. Let's please commit to this mm-hmm. with respect. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not going to happen without some push. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think of two things when you say that, when you're talking about the unexpected change or change in the future. And, and it reminds me of managing expectations. That was the first thing that came to my mind that, you know, a lot of the times it's not so much that the situation is unattainable. It's that our expectations of what it was going to be like was different and then we're upset about it. Um, and then I also think about the inevitable change that we don't deal well with because of that relationship thing. So when you have a good relationship, you grow with your partner. And so a good relationship, it's comfortable with change when there's a good relationship. In our case, we protect that lake now. We call it the cleanest of the Great Lakes. We value it because it's cleaner than all the other lakes, but we think it's going to be there forever. And we're trying to protect it like it's going to be there forever while acknowledging changes that we don't want. But this is a lake that was created, well, 18,000 years ago when there was a glacier over here. Uh, When it left, it depressed the land. It allowed water to melt and create a lake. So that 5,000 years ago, that lake was bigger than it is now. And ever since that 5,000-year-ago period, it's getting smaller and smaller. So it's a rain-fed lake now. It's not being fed by glaciers. And eventually, it's going to change and deplete in the long run. That's its natural way. So no matter what we want to do today and the values around protection, we still have to recognize that that lake is changing and our relationship with it should be such a quality that, you know, maybe we don't stop some of those changes that we can't stop or we don't wrestle with changes that are about to come. But I think it's because we're adding to the changes that causes us anxiety. The second thing is, is that, you know, we live in an an area where not only do we experience more warming than the rest of the country, but we hover just below zero on average, which means the average temperature here throughout the year is mostly frozen or frozen a lot. And frozen water is very safe and different from moving warm water. And the more incremental changes in the climate that happen in Canada will not only be experienced more in the north, but it will be experienced on ecosystems like that, that these small changes have large effects on the temperature and the homeostasis of the lake. So when it's frozen, like in the 1960s, all the way across almost, that is a very different control on homeostasis than when it can undergo processes throughout that time. So we are going to experience changes on this lake. It wants to change. It's it's it created to change and deplete. And it's so how do we have that relationship that we're talking about, not just restoring it and not just looking at it from afar and valuing it, but the relationship where those changes we're confident about, we're not scared of them. They don't symbolize some sort of failure on our part of the ecosystem. It allows us to make incremental changes in a stimulating way that allow us to address the change. So, you know, it, it teaches us to adapt because it's adapting. That's where the science, the program, the 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 people involvement that still needs to exist there can simply be turned inside out by how we see that relationship, which then leads to how we value it, which leads to how we want to protect it and how we want to fight for it over extraction or either ignoring it or knowing it's there to take our pollution so we can keep developing without really thinking about the final consequences of it. You said near the beginning that it's a relationship, it's a living entity, that lake, and it's more like a mother or a teacher than a friend or a colleague or an employee, you know, there's their top up. So as a mother, if my child were to describe me in terms of the lunch I make and how clean I keep my house and how good I am about driving them to whatever they feel they need to get to, and that was the full sum relationship, it could be qualified by what I do for them. 
That would be the definition of heartbreak, wouldn't it? As opposed to how we think of our own mothers. There's so much more than what they've done for us or how we do things together. There's this enormous connection. And that is what I think, I'm getting teary here. You're talking about we need to give ourselves permission to have with the place we live. The water moves beyond us, through us, and, and to us, and feeds us. We're also rooted in the land. We walk over similarly. You know, we're, we're fed by it. We are supported by it. And we can see ourselves as not being directly of it. And yet we are. If you move the embrace to the limit of the air above us and the depth of the soil below us, we're moving and swimming in the midst of, of one living thing that we're a part of. And it's a loving relationship. Love is not easy and it's messy and it's not a yes or no relationship in any way. Um, but it is the point. Well, as I watched your eye tear up, I saw the lake. I saw you, emotional. I saw the water in you. That is the lake. You know, whether you have to go stand at the shore and in the morning when the moisture is coming up and breathe in to realize that 70% of your body isn't just water, but it's that water and you're drinking it every day you are in an amniotic fluid that is the lake while you're sitting here in my office. So, you know, at that point in my thinking, all I can go is to the teachings I was lucky enough to give that water is a lifeblood. You know, think of that word. It's not a medical term. It invokes a mystery, but something deep inside you that makes sense, even though you can't quite appreciate everything that that, that means, the lifeblood of something. Or when I talk about a relationship with the lake, that deepens our love, and I talk about the love that we need to feel good on this planet while some of us struggle. Well, what if it isn't about loving deeper and loving differently? What if loving a rock can be because of the work of a relationship you have to achieve to appreciate that that is maybe everything that ever existed compressed into one grandfather? Um, the love in the lake isn't just about this like, oh, I need to appreciate it more and maybe I'm not appreciative, spend more time on it. It is the type of love that teaches us how to live. And so, I, you know, this is where I'm losing words because, and I want to let go of the words, right? The lifeblood, the, the women who carry water and speak for the water, uh, the women who walk around the lake. These are all incredibly mysterious, deep connections that I can't even say, let alone think. But I feel them, and, and, and for a moment I feel it, and, and maybe that's all there is. And maybe we're, we're, we're looking for more, you know, we, as humans, right? We're all, our business isn't growing. Well, maybe you could, you'll have a nice balanced life now. And, and, and so we just were so averse to this idea that, you know, what we're seeking perhaps is right in front of us. It's right there. And it doesn't take a major effort to do it. it it's, it's, a, it's an openness, a willingness to shift into that and that this is what the lake is taught that's what i mean by a teacher it's not teaching me about ecosystems and fish and stuff alone it is literally flowing with me and teaching me if i pay attention and if i you know believe maybe is a good word if i don't take those thoughts and oh that's you know because i can't quite figure it out and and, and again this is this is what i believe the anishinaabe were have been teaching us all along about the lake right uh, so this is that that wisdom trying to be expressed maybe through a brain that just looks at the lake differently as a job <laughs> i think we could call it there we're both we both got tears in our eyes <laughs> thanks so much yeah, rob thank you heather that was awesome caterpillar field the end of its world then as a butterfly its wings unfurled. I thought I knew where that conversation would go. And it went the places I expected, but it went so much farther. I mean, there was good news there about work ready to be done. I just need some willing hands. Some concerned and thoughtful, committed citizens willing to work together to usher it through to completion gel themselves as a group, get their hands dirty, and, and see the powerful effect of their efforts. That's great. I didn't know, and I'm so happy to know. But it also made me think about that, that note of awe when astronauts are asked to describe how being outside of our atmosphere and looking down at our planet as they circle it changed their understanding 
of things. And they all speak of the earth, of how from that distance they could see these enormous systems of, of nourishment and exchange and, and cleansing and sharing and transportation and, and interdependence that we're too close to and too small within to easily see from the surface. And also how much we are held within that thin space, that miracle of life between the rock at the heart of our planet and the vacuum beyond our atmosphere. Properly understanding the majesty and the glory and the power of those wild and ancient systems that have nourished us and we are a part of in this Anthropocene era where our choices are hubris, our decisions we made without even caring too much about what the unintended consequences might be, just really proud of ourselves because we have made an impact on the world. We've set out what we set out to do. We have power. It reminds me of two-year-olds. I mean, you know, two-year-olds, when they discover that powerful two-letter word, no, need to be carefully monitored. It's like they're drunk on the power of imposing themselves on the world. N-O, the sledgehammer of a world. And they are a danger to themselves and the world around them. They're, they're gloriously inspiring and, and, and cute, as, as a, but hard to handle, and, and really do need care. And I feel like, as a species, we're, we're so new to this planet, and, um, and we've been kind of wielding our hammer of imposing our will willy-nilly without any real consideration of, of whether that's actually what we'd want to do if we took the whole picture into consideration. It's more about what we can do and not what we would like to do, what makes sense, what as caring, responsible, nourishing adults we want to leave as our legacy on this planet. We've got to kind of spring from, from toddlerhood to responsible, wonderful adult in a snap at this point, which is a little daunting until I think of it, uh, well, actually, a book. For fun, I was reading a book I picked up because it was a, a paperback at the library, and I thought, I need something light. And it was light and very easy to read and very fun, a novel by Cecilia Ahern called The Year I Met You. And the premise is a woman who's uncoupled from her every day and given a year where she ha can't work. And in that year, how she is transformed by getting to know herself and those around her better. And the final line is, Just as when the caterpillar thought the world was over, it became a butterfly. And I thought, oh, that is the metamorphosis we are poised for right now as a species. And the key to knowing how to stop wielding hammers and imposing our imperfect knowledge and its unintended consequences on our world, but instead being part of the solution is a humble listening to the older systems that have done a perfectly good job long before we came along. So that led me to the song, the song I have for you today. Let us face the day, reach out, meet help halfway, listen to wild ones say, open, embrace the day. Come let us face the day, reach out, meet help halfway, listen to wild ones say, play the whole song though I want to just underline one thing in there besides that it made us cry to think about just how vulnerable you have to be to let go of the hubris and know that you don't know all there is that's worth knowing but there is a teacher the wild and those that have listened deeply and closely to the teachings of the wild of the space they live in, the water they rely on for generations. 
the potential there is wonderful. But the, the little seed that he also planted was that we live in a, in a place in the world where the average temperature that we've already locked in by the carbon we've poured into our atmosphere is guaranteed to move us a little bit higher than those closer to the equator who get a little bit less of it. We're at the upper end, it's an average. So if we go up from, we're already one degree warmer than we've historically been, crazy weather going down is, is one of the symptoms of this. As we go up the next half a degree that is guaranteed is gonna happen, we're gonna go up a little more than half a degree and that is significant because our average year-round temperature right in this place, on this shore of this land, in this watershed is right around freezing. It's just below freezing, less than half a degree below freezing. And frozen water is a very different thing to cohabit with. It's a very different effect on its watershed than running water. So we're going to see more extreme water. There's no two ways about it. Moving water, intense extreme water events in the coming years. It's, it's locked in. There's no fixing that. There's only preparing to adapt to that. He popped that in there. My head is ringing. I felt I needed to underline that. But it also made me think of the city of Chicago. You know, Chicago was a bigger city than we are. It was a denser populated city than we are. It was way back, over 150 years ago, so technologically way behind what we have at our fingertips. And they realized that they were going to die because of their water management. And so they ratcheted up the entire city. You can look this up. There's amazing documentaries about it. They actually lifted the city to put a water management system underneath it of sewers and treatment plants and filtration systems. And they saved their lives, their city, their, their urban future. And they, they changed and transformed cities around the world by that innovation. Um, going back to many other much more ancient cities. I mean, human beings have been living densely together for a long time, and only recently have we started looking at the remains of, of many of those places and realized that the key to their enduring success was respect, cohabitation with water, that, that how we use it, how it moves through the spaces we live in, and adapting ourselves to that is key to sustainably living somewhere. It's, it's not about cities being bad or farming being bad. No, it's about how we do these things. And, and we've done better and we can do better again. In fact, never have we had more tools at hand to help us quickly transform how we do stuff and benefit by what we figured out. Benefit by understanding the value of slowing down and listening and thinking and being very cautious not to introduce things that we don't fully understand because we have made that mistake, right? We made that mistake with carbon we're pumping in. We didn't intend to change the climate when we started releasing these millions of years worth of carbon through burning fossil fuels, but we did it. We know better now. And the other one you mentioned was aerosol sprays and the sulfate and the acid rain it led to. We didn't intend that, but we did it, and it took us a while to figure it out. So here we are, a few strikes to the negative, pumping stuff into our water like, you know, actual physical pollution people could see floating by. We didn't do it because we thought it'd be a great idea to pollute. We just didn't think it through until we did, and then we fixed it. Well, that is cart before the horse thinking. And from now on, we really have every good excuse to start being much more precautious and not launching things before they've been fully tested, like green chemistry's transformation of recent that we were talking about on last week's edition of the show. So there you go. That's enough of a detour. It's a long enough episode already. Let me give you the song I wrote you today. I'm calling it Caterpillar Fears. Caterpillar Wild souls. Wild is the secret that lets seeds grow. It knows, it knows, it 
it heals, adopts, and grows. Wild is the secret that lets seeds grow. Come, let us face the day. Reach out, meet help halfway. Listen to wild ones say, person responsible for this podcast. They're my ideas. I have no producer, no composer. It's all me. No researcher, no fact checker for that matter. All the things I reference, I try to share with you on my website, www.somethingdifferentthiswaycomes.ca. There's a newsletter if you want to get the behind the scenes every week. There's a GoFundMe want to help cover some of the costs of putting this on for you. The biggest thing you could do, if you enjoy what you're listening to, if you think it's worth, worth spreading the word, that would be the biggest thing you could do. Tell a friend about it. Give it a rave review somewhere. Follow it on your favorite podcast provider. All those things would be so appreciated. Something different, this way comes something. Something different, something different. Something different, this way comes something. Something different, something different.